I've learned about politics comes down in the end to a sort of tribal feeling. So I'm standing there at the door to the lobby thinking, outside are David Gork and Amber Rudd. David's my boss, Amber, who I like very much, uh, and they're not in here. Right? And then I'm looking at the other people in the lobby and I'm thinking, you know, when it comes to the question time, who do I want to be with here? Um, so, yeah. All right, well, I guess that's politics, but it's, it's not, a, not a very pleasant profession on a night like this. So, yeah. let's, I mean, yeah. let, let's circle back. Yeah. We might end up yeah. back where we started, but let's, I, I want to make this conversation a little bit broader and sort of not too detailed on tonight. I mean, I suppose the first question is, by what particular misfortune did you end up being the chief spokesperson for the Prime Minister's deal? <laughs> well, I suppose uh, from the, the misfortune begins with this. The misfortune begins with... Uh, my belief that trying to stay in the European Union uh, would be much, much more difficult and damaging if you follow through three, four steps what it would feel like for Britain to try to remain in the European Union, given all that happened with the referendum. Uh, and therefore, I felt that Brexit was, in the end, inevitable, and that the best way of dealing with it was through a deal. And this also comes down to my admiration, in a way, for the civil servants who negotiated the deal and my belief that actually Europe was quite generous, that it wasn't a deal where Europe was setting out to punish Britain. There wasn't some sort of evil plot. Uh, and the withdrawal agreement seemed to me, from the moment it arrived, to be absolutely right. I mean, it struck me at the time that there might be an extreme of hard Brexiteers who would want no deal, and there might be an extreme of people who voted Remain who couldn't contemplate any kind of Brexit. But if you wanted a Brexit deal, this was about as good as you were going to get. So I went out on the first morning defending this deal uh, and then discovered there was nobody else really following me. So, uh, so since then, I've been uh, kind of defending the deal. I mean, I, I, last night, for example, I got home to my kids. And um, sure enough, I was called out to do uh, you know, the 10 o'clock thing, and then today I had to do Politics Live, and then I had to do The World at One. Um, uh, and it's, it's an odd feeling, because on Twitter, the, ideal, the idea that I think this is a good deal is, is treated with such complete contempt and rage by everybody. Does it, and it's even true for interviewers. I mean, I, I did the Victoria Derbyshire show recently, and I said, well, you know, I think it's a good deal. And she said, it's not a good deal. And I thought, what well, do you why, why do you not think it's a good deal, Victoria? And she quickly then backed off and went, no, no, I mean, I mean obviously I don't have a view on the deal. But, you know, <laughs> do you think the government's done enough to sell it? I mean, it, it, it strikes me that actually the Prime Minister in particular has not gone out and said a lot of things that she quite obviously could and should have done, not least I won quite a load of concessions from the EU they said they'd never give me. Yeah, I mean, I think maybe. I mean, I think that there is something more fundamental, which is that we tend to focus on the individual. But the structural problems here are very, very deep. So, you know, 40 years of being tied into Europe and the difficulty of disentangling. A country that is split almost exactly 50-50 straight down the middle, Brexit remains. A parliament without a majority where there are at least eight different views on Brexit, and a constitutional system where the way that we proceed as a parliament in, is we propose uh, peace legislation, and traditionally, if parliament doesn't vote for it, we give up. We don't do anything. 
But in this case, we propose peace legislation, Parliament doesn't vote for it, but we're not allowed to give up because we've been instructed by a referendum to get on deliver Brexit. So we have to keep coming back. In that slightly mad world, um, I think we can have a discussion about whether me or Anand or someone else could have sold it more charmingly. But I think we probably still would have been, uh, whoever was doing it, would have been the laughing stock of Britain because it's uh, an almost impossible task to pull off whoever you are. Can you enumerate for us what you think the differences are between, what, the, between the Brexit that Mr Corbyn seems to want and this deal? Okay, so this was something that I'm really interested in because <laughs> these two things are very, very, very close to each other. And it would not take a huge act of compromise to get them into exactly the same place. You know, I, I sometimes fantasize about some UN mediator coming in and sort of sitting these two parties together and getting us to lay out uh, what's happening. The story... The Chancellor trying to do that today after his spring statement. Yeah, I guess, I guess um, the Chancellor is trying to do that. I guess in a very, very small budget way. I'm trying to do it every time I go on television or radio with any Labour MP or, in fact, person to person. I mean, Ken Clark sort of got it right with both Corbyn and... Uh, and um, uh, with Keir Starmer yesterday when he said, look, um, you, you, you agree with the withdrawal agreement. You want to protect uh, Ireland. You want to deal with citizens' rights. You want to deal with money. You, you like a withdrawal agreement, right? So why won't you vote for it? And the answer seems to be the political declaration. But, of course, at the same time, they're saying the political declaration isn't legally binding anyway. Uh, and they're conceding that the European Union isn't prepared to negotiate with the member state in that way to let out that kind of certainty. So I suppose if you were being fair to Labour, what they want is not uh, a backstop, which Keir Starmer says is a de facto permanent customs union. They want an explicit statement uh, of a permanent customs union. But he did just spend the whole of yesterday saying that nothing the Attorney General had said uh, gave any legal route for Britain to leave the backstop, right? So he is arguing that Britain would be in the customs union permanently. He just wants the prime minister to say that. And he wants the prime minister to say that because he wants to be able to say, you crossed your red line. So it's really, I, I feel, uh, that they, if they genuinely are interested in compromise at all, which I don't know, because more cynical people might say that even if you move towards them, it's not really in Jeremy Corbyn's interest to reach an agreement with the Conservative Party anyway. He wants a general election. So another objection might well emerge, which is what I feel with the ERG, that in a sense, uh, the Brady Amendment was very misleading because it suggested that if you changed the backstop, they'd all vote for it. I, I, my guess is that Everybody here is not prepared to budge an inch. They're rewarded by their constituents for intransigence. So the problem for somebody like me or even the Chancellor today is that we might think that we're sort of trading and we're getting little changes and can bring people on board. But I, I suspect they're just going to pull further away as soon as you try to come to meet them. So, I mean, thinking back to 6.45 yesterday evening when the world looked relatively rosy, uh, what did you expect to happen with that vote yesterday? I mean, A, did you expect it to win, and B, if you expected it to lose, what did you expect it to lose by? So, um, 
we're all going as politicians very, very stir crazy in this little place and losing perspective. Uh, I think I saw it more clearly six months ago. So six months ago, I was saying to colleagues, and I was betting them, that there was no way of getting the ERG to vote for the Prime Minister's deal. So I kept saying, it's not going to work. You know, what possible reason would Boris Johnson ever have to support the Prime Minister? Why would John Redwood or Bill Cash ever do that? So I was arguing the only option, if you wanted to get a majority, was to track towards trying to build a majority, uh, potentially around a customs union, right, with Labour. To which my cynical colleague said, yeah, but everything you've just said about the IG applies to Labour too. It's not going to work on that side either, right? So on the basis of that, I concluded that there was no way that we could ever really get a majority behind the deal, short of coming up with some other measurement or some other way of doing the voting, you know, which is where my fantasy of locking everybody up in the House of Commons and not allowing them to leave until they've, until they've actually come up with a compromise comes from, because you need a different mechanism. If again and again you ask people a question and allow them the ability to just say, nah, nah, I don't really like it. I've got my principles. I'm not prepared to compromise. Um, we're never going to get there. I mean, this could keep going for, you know, it sometimes feels like it could keep going for 200 years. I mean, it doesn't matter that the thing's just 12 days away. People are still not prepared to shift a quarter of an inch. Did you not detect a sense among some MPs, even last night, even with 12, 13 days to go, that they knew that this wasn't the last chance saloon because everyone's pretty confident there's going to be a delay. I, yep, so I think there's that. I think the extension of Article 50 allows everyone to continue the belief that they'll eventually get what they want, despite the fact that they all want something different, so they can't all be right. But that, that is the basic view, right? The ERG somehow thinks that at the end of the process, they're going to get no deal. and. Customs union people feel in the end they're going to get the customs union if that's what they mean, if they don't mean a general election. Other people believe they'll eventually get a second referendum. So nobody's actually ever forced to really make their mind up. Now, it's being a bit unfair because some people came into the lobby with us yesterday. Some unusual people, David Davis, Philip Davis, Nadine Doris, people that you wouldn't have expected to be in that lobby. So it's not quite true that nobody shifted as we get closer. But still, for the majority, they seem to be prepared to risk getting exactly the opposite of what they want, rather than compromise. Do you remain confident that, well, firstly, do you think a, a delay is now inevitable, an extension of the Article 50 period? Uh, yeah. Yeah, I think it's now inevitable. Yeah. And how long do you think that might end? I mean, I, I don't want to preempt the votes tomorrow, but let's just say we get a short delay. Do you, are you confident that some version of this deal might yet stand a chance of getting through the Commons? Well, this this is to do with the. <laughs> this is to do with uh, my heart and my head, right? <laughs> so, I mean, logically speaking, it, it feels inevitable that eventually some version of this deal has to get through the House of Commons because logically, if we're going to do Brexit in a responsible way, we've got to do some version of this deal. Um, and incidentally, I don't think a second referendum really solves anything. I think. It will probably end up back here again. A general election doesn't solve anything. We end up back here again. I mean, it, it, it's... Um, but then I've got to balance that with this sort of strange structural analysis I've just produced, where somehow it seems as though 
something to do with the very nature of parliament, with the nature of constituencies, with the, the way that people seem to be able to keep pushing things down the line, uh, means that it doesn't get through, which is why. Right, in, in brief moments of clarity, I begin to think the answer has to be procedural, right? I mean, it, it, if the answer is some version of the Brexit deal is logical and inevitable, but that the problem is something to do with the way that voting is organized or sequenced, that you can never take anything off the table, then the answer has to be for some brilliant person to design a mechanism of putting people in the room and saying, okay, we're gonna keep taking options off the table through some system until we end up. So this is sort of in, the in, a version of the indicative votes? Well, but it would have to be more than indicative. I mean, I think indicative would just tell you there's no majority for anything yeah. again, right? So we have that sort of indicative votes. It would have to be uh, something more like a single transferable vote or, an, or dropping the least popular option each time until eventually you ended up. And would, do you think under those circumstances this deal might still end up coming out on top? Yeah, I think if you did that, the maths are with the deal because we know that there were yesterday approximately 70 people in favour of a no deal. There are 100, 120 in favour of a second referendum, which means that the others theoretically are in favour of some kind of Brexit deal, and of those, the majority are in favour of this deal. So you did it that way, you end up at this deal. But I, there is no precedent in British parliamentary history for Parliament voting in anything other than a binary yes or no way. Yeah. Just, just to go back to something you said, can you just explain why you don't think a referendum would solve anything? Yeah, so why do I think a referendum wouldn't solve anything? I think the first thing is the legitimacy of the result. So uh, clearly if it was another vote for Brexit, it wouldn't solve anything, right? But let's imagine that it was a vote for referendum. Let's imagine it's, and here I'm stealing Anand's uh, argument here, right? Um, but if uh, the numbers were even slightly greater in favor of Remain the Brexit, so let's imagine 53-47 or 54-46, but the turnout was different or you changed the nature of the electorate, you know, if you'd done what uh, uh, is being suggested by people who want 16-year-olds to vote or European citizens to vote, then you've got, right, okay, a narrow victory in the other direction, but suddenly the whole rules of the game have been changed. And at that point, the movement for the third referendum starts immediately, and you rejoin the European Union. But you're rejoining the European Union like somebody who's just announced you're getting divorced, spent two years rubbishing your partner, and then you're turning up back in the house again, being like, mm, you know what, it turned out to be a little bit more expensive than I thought, and um, can we just, can I, can I, can I move back into the bed? And, uh, and then, you know, day two, you're like, okay, you know, I've got really strong views about what we have for dinner, so um, I, I want it on the record. We're never, ever having sweet potato again, right? Now, now, what do I mean by that? What I mean is that you're sitting down with Germany and France and you're saying, as you know, you know, in Britain, we're really ambivalent about the European project. So, um, been away for a couple of years, but come back and uh, notice you're doing this stuff about the European army. No. Don't really like that stuff. And uh, all this ever closer stuff, I mean, there's talk from Macron, forget it, forget it, forget it, forget it. And, uh, you know, you've got views on Turkey, but we've got pretty strong views on Turkey, and we're going to start blocking what you're doing. On and at some point, the French and Germans turn around and say, enough already, right? You just try to leave. You've been rubbishing our project. You've been ambivalent about it for 40 years, and now you're 
So what kind of soft power have you got left? What I mean is that most things that happen in Europe are not happening um, through a British veto. They're happening through some form of majority, right? So when I was a minister at the Council of Ministers negotiating on nitrogen dioxide targets on motor cars, I'm trying to build a coalition of other countries. I'm not doing it by saying, but that coalition becomes very, very difficult, particularly when they can see on the streets of Britain the third referendum movement already starting. And they're thinking, OK, you're back now, but how long are you going to stay? So I don't think the answer can be to rejoin the European Union now. The answer might be in 20, 30 years, if Macron pulls off inner circles and outer circles to re-engage and think about how Britain could re-engage with an outer circle. But at the moment, rejoining the European Union, I think, would be much more difficult than people have, have realized. I mean, given what you've just said, are you surprised that the member states still seem quite keen on a stay? Um, I think that may be shifting a little bit. But yes, you're right. I mean, people are keen on a staying. But why are they keen on a staying? So if you're Martin Selmayr, I'm not quite sure how keen you really are on a staying. I think if you're Martin Selmayr, you may be thinking, look, enough of them. We've got a lot of other things to be getting on with. Um, so quite a lot of people keen on a staying are keen on a staying because we're one of the largest economies in Europe and because they're worried about what it suggests about the clubs that a major member would leave. But I think we're hearing... We do pay quite a lot. And we pay quite a lot. But we're hearing much less of what we heard two years ago, which is, oh my goodness, you know, you are the center of Europe, your vision, your free market economics, your pragmatic approach, British empiricism, you know. That stuff we're not hearing so much anymore. Perhaps that's because we've changed. <laughs> I mean, do you think, though, that the European Union, let's just say we end up with a short extension, let's just say it's, we get an extension in the first instance to the European Parliament elections. Do you think that the EU can help you get the deal over the line by saying the right things and closing off the right options? Well, Europe can certainly uh, help and it can certainly harm. So clearly every time European leaders try to present the deal as a massive victory for Europe and humiliation for Britain, and every time that Macron says we're going to get them with a fish or someone suggests we're going to get Gibraltar, it doesn't really help. Mm -hmm. um, and I do think that there is a perfectly reasonable discussion to be had with Europe, I'm afraid. And I think you and I probably disagree with this on the question of the Irish border and the backstop. I do think that, in the end, Barnier's position and the position of a lot of German politicians on this is making that issue more binary than it needs to be. And there probably is a world in which, I mean, Barnier did it in his speech today. He said, you know, we are keeping peace in Ireland. And this is very important, particularly German politicians and for European politicians. Mm -hmm. They see it as a project of peace. Um, but there might be a reasonable discussion. If you're saying this is part of a common travel area, free movement of people, if you're saying that this is really about checks on certain kinds of goods, uh, to argue that in five years' time, there are no alternative arrangements. And remember, these guys are saying that the backstop is supposed to be temporary. 
And a lot of what they're saying at the moment is, seems to be undermining that. I mean, if they're literally saying there is no conceivable alternative arrangement, then it's not a backstop, is it? It's a permanent arrangement. But is that what they're saying? Aren't they saying, look, in five years' time, if there are alternative arrangements, that's fine, we don't need the backstop. But until there are those arrangements, isn't... I don't, think they're quite, I don't think they're saying that. I think they are saying sotto voce. We don't believe in any of these alternative arrangements. We haven't seen anything that resembles an alternative arrangement. And that's why we can't imagine setting a time limit, even in five years' time or 10 years' time or 15 years' time, because they simply don't believe there could be an alternative arrangement, because for them, the only arrangement that could possibly uh, keep peace in Ireland and achieve their objectives or achieve the objectives of the Republic is to have no mm -hmm. border at all. Uh, but if I flip that yeah. on its head, it's yeah. always struck me that one of the strange paradoxes of the Brexit position or the ERG position was if they're really so confident that the technology does or will exist and that actually we don't need to have infrastructure to do that border, why don't they just accept the backstop? Yeah, so I agree with you on that and I agree that uh, there's a more powerful argument actually which I'm surprised hasn't been made. Right, and I'm not going to make it as a government minister, but hypothetically, right? Uh, you do in a different voice. In a different voice, in a, in a comical different voice. Uh, if you were an ERGer, I would be tempted to say, look, and you know, Jeffrey Cox seemed to be hinting at this, and Steve Barclay almost seemed to be hinting at this yesterday. If you have spent, produced your alternative arrangements to technology, you've spent five years making good faith efforts on these alternative arrangements, communicating them to Europe, communicating to Britain, preparing. You go to the independent arbiter, because for some reason Europe won't accept your alternative arrangements, and the independent arbiter also, for some reason, totally rejects everything that you've been doing. At that stage, the political calculus has changed. I mean, at that stage, uh, you might be tempted to say, okay, in the end, we've made a really good effort for five years with all this stuff. We've got decent stuff in place. If you really, in the end, won't let us have an independent trade policy, I'm afraid we're leaving. Right now, the problem with that is that you're breaking international law. The problem for Europe on that is that they can't do anything about it. They're not going to invade you, right? So that's why Europe wouldn't push it to that. I mean, and that scenario, by the time you've got up the opposite, it's inevitable that you would be able to leave the backstop because nobody's going to push you over the edge in that way because they know that they have no recourse. Am I detecting sort of implicit in what you said that you think those three documents the Prime Minister brought back on Monday didn't really change much of substance? Uh, I believe the three documents uh, clarified why people shouldn't be frightened of the backstop. And I think Europe did the right thing, which is to get out of the story, oh, well, it's just a letter, make it legally binding, and be explicit about providing the procedure to do exactly what I've just explained. And I think it was a helpful clarification. Yeah. Do you think, from what you've gleaned from inside government, that there is any prospect that the European Union will make any more concessions to us if we try to go back and renegotiate for a meaningful vote three? I believe the only way and it's going to be a very, very, very small chance. But the only way of getting the small chance of Europe shifting in any way at all this time would be to have an explicit majority in the House of Commons written in blood, name by name by name by name, of what we would vote for. And if at that stage you went back with a very modest, achievable request saying, if you change this sentence, 
here are 400 people and the deal is done, yeah, then I think you've got a chance. Not a big chance, but you've got a chance. And can you, can you think of, of, of something... So presumably that would just be a time limit, is yeah. what you're talking about. Yeah, an probably, explicit time limit. Probably an explicit time limit, yeah. yeah. I mean, just a final thing on... I want to talk to you about politics more generally, which is a lot more interesting, but... Just a final thing on the agreement itself. You've, you're on record as saying that you think the deal is the path to reconciliation for the country. Mm. And I just want to sort of wonder aloud, it seems to me that what MPs have done, even if eventually somehow this thing squeaks over the line by one or two votes just before the end of May or whatever, that all the MPs have done is given themselves a large dollop of plausible deniability. That's to say, the, di the day after this is all done, they'll turn around and say, I always hated that deal. I voted against it two or three times already. I was bullied, forced, scared, cajoled, bribed into supporting it, but I never really liked it. And the whole thing kicks off again on Brexit day plus one. Yeah, I think... That is quite possible. Um, I think the fundamental question is what's happened to Britain, right? I mean, we were meant to be a country that was sort of all meant to be about sort of funny little compromises, right? We don't have really a Catholic church. We don't really have a Protestant church. We have this weird thing called the Church of England, right? We don't really have a republic. We don't really have a monarchy. We have this thing called a constitutional monarchy. I mean, we tend to fudge. We tend to overcome our problems in the middle, right? Suddenly, I'm looking at a country which has become completely polarized. And it's all about, I will not compromise. I found myself on Friday night up against Nigel Farage and Andrew Adonis. It's a very strange experience, right? So I'm at this debate. And the two of them are against me. And I suddenly realized they were actually the same person. I thought they were different people, right? <laughs> Uh, because they both speak the language of no compromise, right? I, so I was trying to work out which one of them it was that first uh, said that Theresa May was engaged in an act of equivalent to appeasing the Nazis. Right? The answer, of course, was Andrew Adonis, but then it's Farage who calls her Theresa the appeaser, right? Uh, it's UKIP who first says, you know, she's Neville Chamberlain, but it's... Adonis, who's next week, is now calling it Neville Chamberlain. It's Farage who calls it the uh, Brussels Broadcasting Corporation, but it's Adonis who calls it the Brexit Broadcasting Corporation, right? I mean, they've all got the same worldview, right? The worldview is that there is a conspiracy of the kind of mainstream media and the elites and the cowardly politicians who are trying to force them into this horrible world, and they all see compromise as the worst of all worlds, right? Uh, Whereas we used to in this country see it as the kind of best of all worlds. And I don't quite understand how we reframe this and get back to understanding we've got to live with each other, understand that we're divided north against south, we're divided young against old, we're divided within our own families. We've got to find a way of living together. We cannot just keep coming back to saying, as Remainers do, name me one advantage from leaving the European Union, right? Or the Brexiteers saying, we voted for Brexit. I mean, these are not, this doesn't get you anywhere when you're split 50-50 down the middle. Would you acknowledge that a lot of this is because of the fact that your party inflicted its own personal pain on the rest of us? <laughs> <coughs> oh, well, that's the one. Go on, that's it. It's a popular line, that. You know, one, thing, one thing we can all agree on. Um, I'm going to write uh, it down. Uh, it's a good, good line. Um, well, I guess... 
for somebody like me who represents a, I represent a Cumbrian constituency, and I remember in 2010 taking a Guardian journalist up with me to, uh, for four days, and I did hustings every day. Kind of this number of people in a room, and they were not conservative uh, voters. They were just random people in different pubs and market towns around Cumbria. Every single time I said to them, how many of you uh, want a referendum on the European Union? 90% of the hands would go up, right? And every time I said, how many of you would vote to leave the European Union? 60% of the hands would go up, right? And this Guardian journalist in 2010 said to me, what's wrong with these people? I mean, is he, what is this place, right? I mean, this is crazy land. What, what is going on, right? And I said, no, no, this is, this is normal, right? This is what people think. In other words, what I'm trying to argue is that Yes, the politicians have unveiled something. I don't think they've unleashed something. I think they've revealed something, right? They've revealed something that we sort of knew all along, that Britain's relationship with Europe from the beginning was ambivalent, right? It wasn't a comfortable relationship, or not an entirely comfortable relationship from the beginning. And the push for that referendum has been pretty constant for a pretty long time. Now, whether Cameron was going to be fine of the person of fault, or Nick Clegg, who put it in his manifesto, or Jeremy Corbyn, who put it in his manifesto, in the end, there was an ineluctable logic driving politicians, because what they were facing was people saying, we want to leave, and you guys are not giving us a chance to leave. Right? And we want to say, and we've been in 42 years, we want to say, we want to say, we want to say, right? And at some point, it felt almost inevitable that you were going to be like, all right, this is a big constitutional issue. It's a big issue of national identity. We cannot continue with this narrative that the elite is somehow trapping the British nation against its will. And of course, and this is the added problem, most of us thought that people would vote for Remain. So the miscalculation there from all the party leaders, I'm sure this was true of Nick Clegg, I'm sure it was certainly true of those people in the Labour Party who put it in their manifesto, it's definitely true of David Cameron, is they thought, we're going to call their bluff, right? We've heard this for 40 years, and now we're going to show them that these people who want to vote for Brexit, David Cameron thinks, he's a minority. Right? And when we hold the referendum, it will be revealed that this country is basically pro-European. I'm going to pull you up on this a little bit. I okay. think you might be being a little bit disingenuous because, I mean, I'm you could say to me, do you want to learn Dis disingenuous, Mandarin Chinese? That's my thing. That's and I'd thing. say, yes. Yeah. Right. Could we bother to go to the lessons and do all the work? Absolutely not. And I mean, in the sense, yes, maybe people wanted a referendum, but it was never, I mean, what the, what the polling shows quite clearly, it was never that in their top ten lists of concerns up until we actually had the referendum. That's to say, yeah, they'd have taken a referendum. But it wasn't the thing that was most preying on their minds. It wasn't their political priority in any way, shape, or form until we had the referendum. And now it's all they can think about. So, okay, so there could be different hypotheses then on why David Cameron brought that forward. Or why Nick Clegg put it in his manifesto. Why, why do you think the Lib Dems put it in their manifesto? I try not to talk about the Lib Dems in public. But, uh, <laughs> I, I mean, I think it's an interesting question, because the, the focus tends to be on the Conservatives. Why did the other parties put it in their manifestos if it was something that didn't matter to people? Yeah, that's fair enough. I mean, it's a, it, it, it was populist in the sense that promising referenda 
is something that sounds good. I mean, I remember when uh, Blair was talking about putting the Lisbon Treaty to a, a referendum. It was something that was very, very hard to argue against because you're immediately accused of being elitist, you don't trust the people and that kind of thing. It, it's cheap politics, but that's not to say that there's an overwhelming groundswell of opinion among the public that this is something we absolutely must have. Yeah, we would, we'd take it. It's very, very different to, look, will you lot just sort this out? And I didn't detect prior to 2016 that absolute obsession on the part of the public about having a referendum on the European Union? So I, I think there may be a number of different things going on. I mean, one of them is the ways in which politicians from all parties box themselves in over the Lisbon and the Maastricht votes, where there were demands for referendums on those. And people boxed themselves in and said, OK, you don't get a referendum on that, but any future changes, you'll get a referendum. So that, as soon as that language began, you were beginning to produce that. You'd had the Scottish referendum. You probably would have had some element of responding to party members, which is where you would say, you know, it's a national act of self-harm done by the party. But there would have been a lot of people, I'm afraid, in all those parties calculating that it would get them votes, mm -hmm. that it would help them win an election. And so to say that the three major parties in the United Kingdom on the basis of their polling and research had calculated that this was a popular policy that would, might even give them a marginal advantage, is just telling you a kind of fundamental fact about democracy, I mean, which is that it isn't always the most, doesn't need to be top out of the 10 uh, of the things that you offer for you to put it in your manifesto. I mean, you, you know, at the, that same period, um, a law and order might have been number seven, right? And the NHS might have been number one, but you might still have been sticking law and order right up there in your manifesto to get those votes. Now, the, the question then is this. Is this thing that you are proposing uh, so fundamentally evil uh, that you must never do it? Right? And that, that's, that's the fundamental question. So if you are a very, very strong Remainer, uh, the mere idea of leaving the European Union is so awful that to offer a referendum on it, to even produce the possibility of leaving the European Union, uh, would be like offering a referendum on an immoral issue, right? Uh, for example, uh, you know, most of us in this room would not want to offer a referendum on capital punishment, right? Regardless of how people voted, we wouldn't want to do it because we might feel morally so strongly that even if the majority of the population voted for capital punishment, we still couldn't morally accept it. We'd think a government was wrong to do that. Was a Brexit referendum of that nature? In other words, is it something that it was legitimate for a party to say, well, there's quite a lot of demand for this, we think it'll get us some votes, mm -hmm. quite a lot of people want it, so we're offering a referendum. Or was it something, as you say, so extreme, and the option for voting for Brexit so catastrophic, that it's completely irresponsible well, to I even include it? Yeah, yeah. a little bit left field, but I must leave yeah. that, because I, I want to ask you yeah. a few questions about yeah. your boss, if I may. Uh, I suppose the first question is, what's the difference between working for Theresa May and working for David Cameron? What are the major, major differences in hmm. terms of how that works? I think the first thing is that as a junior minister, uh, you see very little of these people. So uh, we spend a lot of time pretending uh, that we uh, are endlessly talking to the prime minister. Um, the answer is, unless you're in the cabinet, you don't see very much of uh, either David Cameron or Theresa May. I think David Cameron exchanged about uh, four words with me <laughs> in my whole uh, sort of uh, seven years uh, in Parliament with him. Were they nice words? Uh, yeah, I, I think, I mean, I think he kind of knew who I was. I mean, it's kind of, I'm trying to, trying to, 
get to, get to the bottom of, bottom of that. Um, I think, um, oh, that's right. And I remember what happened to David Cameron. I went to see him, and he, he offered me a job as a, as, a, um, as a minister in DEFRA, which is pretty surprising, because I was then chair of the Defense Committee, and I'd spent 20 years of my life doing foreign affairs stuff. But the first job he offered me was, was, um, was to be the environment minister in DEFRA. And I thought, OK, maybe you know, he realizes I'm very interested in the environment. I'm very honored. And I went back to my wife. And, I, um, and then he came up to me about a week later, and he said, are you enjoying doing farming? Right? But he hadn't given me farming. He'd given me the environment. He'd given the other guy farming. Right? So I, 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 I realized that he didn't have a very clear, uh, clear view on who exactly I was. Um, uh, Theresa May, again, is not somebody I know. She's not a boss in the way that anyone in this room would have a boss. I mean, she's, I, uh, she gave me this job in the way that David Cameron gave me a job. And I see her in the lobbies of the House of Commons. But I do uh, have an admiration for her um, because I think, um, well, firstly, because I really agree with her violently <laughs> about this withdrawal agreement. I mean, that's, what, that's the fundamental. My fundamental relationship with her is that, like her, I think this is the right thing to do. And the fact that somehow she is continuing. Even agreeing violently now. That's yeah. what's happened to Britain. That's it, exactly. Even, yeah. even agreement is now violent. Uh, whereas I think I disagreed with David Cameron on quite a lot of things. Yeah. So, yeah. hand on heart, yeah. did you think when it was called that the 2017 election was a good idea? Ah. Oh. It's very interesting, right? So uh, I sat with George Osborne just before the 2017 election, right? And in the end of the last year, he'd said to me, never hold another election. Be absolutely idiotic to hold another election. The one thing you know about elections, they're very risky at all going on. And then about two months before the election, so about two weeks before she announced, he said to me, as far as I remember, you may contradict me on this, I don't understand why she's not holding an election. Completely idiotic. Look how far ahead we are at the polls. This is the obvious time to punch him and take it forward. And I promise you, when she came back from Wales and announced this election, which all of us now, of course, deeply regret and went terribly wrong, right? <laughs> Everybody in the House of Commons and the Conservative Party was walking around going, my goodness, this is a move of genius. I see it now. This is political courage. This is really, right. Um, so uh, yeah, no, I mean, we, we're all now, with the benefit of hindsight, I really think that was a dumb idea. But I didn't meet anyone six weeks before uh, who seemed to say that. Well, if it makes you feel any better, when, uh, when you vote, when the vote took place in the House of Commons, uh, when the division bell was, I yep. was in a room with five or six yep. Labour MPs. Yep. Uh, and when the bell went, one of them turned to me and said, we've got to go, Turkey's voting for Christmas. So right. the view was right. shared on the right, other right, side right, of the right, House right, as well, right, that right, right. this was uh, right. quite a bright thing. Yeah. Uh, I understand you might not want to answer this, but if we were to have a sweepstake on how long the Prime Minister is going to be Prime Minister for, what would you put your money on? Yeah, I don't want to answer that okay, question. Okay, that's very yeah. good. All right. <laughs> I love the charming way he's like, I understand what you don't want to mess with I'm not going to insist. I, one of the things I'm, I really, so it's got you here. One of the things I'm obsessed with is this question of uh, what people think when they say politicians are dishonest, right? So the basic shtick seems to be... Well, we think they lie. Yeah, 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 you got it. Yeah. So, so the basic shtick is politicians are liars. They never answer a question straight, right? 
But what people don't understand or don't think through is the kind of questions that we get asked to answer in public, right? So if I'm, um, if I'm put on, uh, people expect me to sort of talk, you know, with this camera going, right? Uh, as though I'm sort of having a dinner party with a couple of friends. So, you know, Anand's like, so go on, tell us, you know, what do you really think of, uh, you know, name some incredibly unpopular cabinet colleague, right? right? And then when I say rather sort of co-facedly, you know, well, you know, I've got a lot of respect for my colleague. Everyone's like, ah, politicians, liars, rubbish, boo, right? But if you think about your own lives, right, if you were managing a company or you were a teacher in a school and you were asked to comment on another teacher on public television, even if you thought they were a pretty dodgy and horrific fellow, right? You, you'd have to say, no, well, no, you, I you remember, you remember Gerald Ratner, don't you? Yeah. I don't remember what happened. Well, that. The, What's the, that? the guy who owned the jewelers, yeah, yeah. he famously said that we sell crap. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, no, no, that's right. Exactly. That's, that's not yeah. good. Yeah, yeah. So, all right, let yeah, me ask okay, you another yeah, question yeah, then. Yeah, yeah. Why are you a conservative now? Why am I conservative? For the moment. Uh, why am I conservative? Because although I have a lot of views in common with the Labour Party, right? So I, uh, if I think about someone like Tristram Hunt, who's a friend of mine, right? We have similar pick views. Pick one who's left. Yeah, pick one who's left, right? Right. Okay. Uh, we have similar views on uh, Europe. We probably have similar views on how you balance the state against the private sector. Uh, I have an enormous, I, I mean, I was a civil servant, so I have, unlike some of my colleagues who are very skeptical about the civil service and government, I have a lot of affection for government civil service. I want to invest more in the government civil service. Uh, but I guess I'm a conservative because I have eccentric views uh, which are not shared by my Labour colleagues. And some of those are sort of views which aren't really completely rational. They're, they're emotional. Right? So I, I uh, am romantic about the monarchy, about the British army, about small upland farmers in Cumbria. Uh, I mean, it, you know, these are not um, things that I can There's cash... some of your conservative colleagues who aren't that romantic about upland farmers at the moment. No, that's they want to drive them out of business. That's certainly true. So there are two traditions in conservative politics. There's like a Whig tradition and there's a Tory tradition. And I'm a sort of Tory, right? I mean, I... I I want to subsidize small farmers to the hilt, right? I love them. I think the small sheep farmers are our culture. They're our history. They're, we would miss them terribly if they went from the Lake District. I, I support the French common agricultural policy because it subsidizes small farmers. So are you saying of, you're a conservative because you're pro-common agricultural policy? That's a very... But, Anand, I think if you were really to get into the depths of why you would not be a conservative and I would, right? I guess I'm probably more starry-eyed about the monarchy, about the Brigade of Guards, uh, about weird bits of 19th century history. I mean, I'm, I'm more... Um, I'm kind of romantic. I mean, I, I, love, uh, I love all that stuff. And my Labour colleagues, who I agree with on most sort of logical, rational public policy issues, none of that really resonates with them. They don't really enjoy it. They don't really, you know, so, I, I, yeah. Let me put it in yeah. specific terms. Who yeah. are you ideologically closer to? Mm -hmm. Tristram Hunt yeah. or Jacob Rees-Mogg? Ah. <laughs> so I'm not close to Jacob. I mean, I think 
Jacob is, um, yeah, Jacob and I, I mean, we, we did an entire debate in the House of Commons where I supported the European Court of Human Rights against, uh, sorry, European Convention of Human Rights against him for a, a 90 minute debate, just the two of us. So I believe in human rights, he doesn't, is the, is the, bottom, is the, is the bottom line. And yeah, I can save you 90 minutes of watching it, right? Okay. Um, uh, if we figure out how to clip videos, we'll do that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Um, uh, but I believe deeply in history. I believe deeply in tradition. I believe deeply in the countryside. I believe deeply in rural areas. I mean, and yes, there are Labour colleagues who sort of think those things, but not in the same way, right? I mean, they, they're related, you know, what I feel when I'm walking uh, at the Remembrance Day parade in Penrith mm -hmm. behind all these soldiers, um, uh, you know, connects me to my father. My father was born in 1922, and I spent my childhood standing with him remembering his brother who died in the war, and he'd fought in the D-Day beaches, and so I'm now sounding like Mark Frost. Well, this is all going terribly wrong, but the, 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 there is a, there's an element here where, in order to explain why I'm a conservative... You're suggesting that Jeremy Corbyn wouldn't feel exactly the same way. Exactly. Yeah, 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 you got it, you got it. He wouldn't feel exactly the same way, yeah. But, yeah. I mean, hypothetically speaking, are yeah. there members of your parliamentary party who, if they became leader of your party, you might have to consider your allegiance to it? Yes. Okay. I, do you think having Conservative Party members ultimately in charge of choosing Conservative leaders is a good idea? I don't know how else you'd do it, to be honest. I mean, I think there's a problem, which is that the Conservative Party is now small compared to where it was historically. Mm -hmm. And that gives a lot of power to a few people. But I don't think a party can operate except by giving votes to its members. I don't understand how you would have a, a modern political party that didn't do that. Hmm. Do you think, I'm conscious that you have plans afterwards and yeah. we're running out of time, yeah. but... Uh, also, your questions are getting too good. If I sit here too long, I lose my this job. This is the interesting so bit. This is interesting. <laughs> you should have drunk your wine by yeah, exactly. now. Yeah, exactly. I'm nervous too, I can see. Are you concerned that there are people who think the Conservative Party is institutionally racist? And do you see why they might think that? Hmm. I don't think the Conservative Party is institutionally racist. Um, but maybe I haven't thought about it enough. I mean, it's, it's um, yeah, I mean, I, I guess may, maybe I've missed something. I mean, I, 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 it doesn't feel like that. I don't feel that it's, um, but then, you know, you can make the obvious counterpoint, which is that I guess if I was a Corbyn loyalist, I might say the same about the Labour Party for a similar sort of criticism on a yeah, certain okay. thing. I mean, I, you know. Are you worried about the impact that the Brexit process is having on attitudes towards politicians amongst the public because I mean there's been a slew of polls over the last few months that shows that whilst the British people is profoundly are profoundly divided over all sorts of things the one thing they agree on is that politicians are letting them down are you concerned about that and do you think that that could yeah be a well it's a problem? big it is a big problem because in the end um, if politicians matter at all and that's a you know, up for debate, right? I mean, they may not matter as much as certainly the politicians think, but they may not even matter as much as the public think, right? But, but we, 
we have this illusion that politicians matter and that politics matters, although I think the average person in Britain spends about seven minutes a week actually thinking about politics. So there is a sort of slight disconnect between this. And obviously, most of what we see around us doesn't really depend on politicians, except in a very indirect sense. I mean, there's a, it's an illusion that somehow London works because there is you know, a mayor or a prime minister who's somehow micromanaging it, whereas obviously it works because 10 million people are spontaneously, organically working with each other. And, uh, and countries that have, and of course, there are a number of European countries who've done this, who uh, have ended up with no government for some years, don't seem to suffer quite as much as you would expect if politicians mattered as much as, as people suggest. But if politicians matter, and they obviously matter in some sense, then it is important that people kind of get what a politician is, and it's important for a democracy. I mean, if you, and, and one of the reasons for that is the worse your view of politicians, the worse we get, because you are our boss, right? So if you, you vote for us, we report to you. So if you spend your whole time saying you are a bunch of incompetent, corrupt, second-rate, idle, whatever, right? it's not very motivating for your employee. Right? In fact, your employee might begin to think, oh, Which well, is if, in our office. If, <laughs> if that's what you think of me, well, then, you know, really, am I going to feel motivated? In fact, you might end up with the politicians getting even idler and more corrupt the more you tell them they're lazy and corrupt rather than achieving what you want, right? Uh, and it's also important to have some empathy. It's important to understand that in the end, these politicians are kind of basically you. I mean, the House of Commons, if I suddenly made you all into the House of Commons, it wouldn't look very different from what the House of Commons looks like. I mean, it's you, right? And uh, I probably, the average IQ of people in the House of Commons and the average experience of people in the House of Commons is pretty similar to the average IQ and the experience in this room. Maybe, maybe we're slightly lower in the House of Commons. I don't want to, I don't want to, I don't want to insult King's College London here. But the, 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 the deal is not that politicians are this sort of unusually weird people. They are basically pretty normal people. I, I mean, and, and also the public doesn't really want them to be extraordinary people. I mean, it, the public actually wants politicians to reflect the public. And, and, and Parliament reflects the public more now today than it ever has in the past. Uh, I mean, in the 19th century, uh, you know, Parliament really prided itself on being very different to the public, you know, more educated, wealthier, more traveled, bigger conception of the world. Now the idea is that politicians are supposed to be you. And to a pretty large extent, Parliament is not representative of the country as a whole. My goodness, it's representative of the kind of people I'm looking at in this room. It doesn't look very different from what I look at when I look across the Chamber of the House of Commons. God help us. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> all right, I, I'm conscious we're running out of time. There's one thing I really want to, I mean, you first came to, to my attention sort of consciously back in 2007, because you wrote a piece in the New York Times that I don't expect you to remember, but you said in that piece, that Churchill has been replaced by Bertie Wooster as the result of the Blairification of politics. And actually, at the time, I remember thinking, what does he mean? So now I can ask you, what, what, <laughs> do, what does she mean? Well, I guess uh, I feel that there is a deep lack of seriousness in British politics. Uh, that conviction is the wrong word, right? It, it, 
it's, it's a lack of seriousness. It's that I felt as soon as I saw us debate Afghanistan that we were not a serious country, right? The people debating it were not asking serious questions, that there is a lot of pantomime on every side. It's not, a, it's not only conservatives, Labour too, right? When I was the Africa minister, I was at the dispatch box, and people would pop up. What is the minister going to do to stop the terrible civil war in Burundi? Sit down. What is the minister going to do to deal with the human rights abuses in Western Cameroon? Sit down. What is the minister going to do to deal with the situation in Togo? Right? And somebody needs to say to them, we do not have an embassy in Burundi. We do not have an embassy in Togo. We are not going to do anything about any of these issues. And what fantasy world do you live in right, to think that we're going to be able to do anything about these issues? Right? It's difficult enough trying to sort out HS2. Right? <laughs> so we need to become serious again. And becoming serious as a country means becoming more rooted it means getting away from these very abstract concepts. Our entire politics now is taken over by sort of talking sonorously about equality or sustainability, right? But we've got to get down to individuals, places, people, problems, solve them. I mean, completely enraging that we seem to have lost our practical edge. and, and um, the key thing in politics has to be to focus on, I mean, I, I felt this in, in, look, I'll finish on this. I mean, I, when I took over as the prisons minister, all I got was policy with a capital P, right? Everybody turning up and saying, we need to re-envisage, you know, what is the purpose of a prison? What is a prison for? Or, you know, at the same time, all the windows are broken. There are huge piles of garbage. The drugs are coming over the walls. Violence is spiking. I mean, what do you really need to do? Well, in the short term, you need to start searching people at the gates. You need to be cleaning up the rubbish. You need to be painting the walls. You need to be fixing the windows. And nobody wants to have that discussion. It's a kind of a very, very elevated, abstract kind of thing. Got to become more operational. We've got to become more serious. We're having you back to talk about policy. But as a final question before our quick fire round, you'll be delighted to know that Betfair puts you on the same odds to be the next Prime Minister as Penny Mordaunt, and better odds, as in shorter odds, than Matt Hancock. You should be pleased about that. Do you reckon it's worth a bet at 50 to 1? At 50 to 1, huh? No. No, I wouldn't, I wouldn't take that. 51, no. You'll lose your money at 50 to 1. We'll take those words and twist them. Right. And finally, beer or burgundy? Oh, burgundy. Oh, dear. Beetles or the stones? Stones. Okay. Cheddar or camembert? Ooh, cheddar. Oasis or blur? Neither. Neither. <laughs> Neither. See, you are quite similar to Jacob rees <laughs> uh, Beef bourguignon or steak and ale pie? Or steak and ale pie. UK and a changing Europe or any other think tank you can think of? UK and a changing That's Europe. That's a very good answer. Yeah. And for that final answer... I have to say thank you so much for coming tonight because you've had other things on, but you've got a special oh, beer a, and Brexit. What thank a beautiful you. mug. Thank Rory, thank you, thank you so thank very you much, much indeed. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.